BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello, Alcuin of York was one of the towering figures in the intellectual world of the 8th century and he changed education for the better and for good. For 50 years he learned and taught an exceptionally wide curriculum in Anglo-Saxon Northumbria before Charlemagne brought him to the continent where Alcuin gave new force to the celebration of knowledge that was the Carolingian Renaissance. Meanwhile, the Anglo-Saxon world Alcuin knew was strained by rivalries and by the Vikings, who looted books for the gold or jewels on them, not for the words inside. With me to discuss Alcuin are Joanna Storey, Professor of Early Medieval History at the University of Leicester, Andy Orchard, Rawlinson and Bosworth Professor of Anglo-Saxon at the University of Oxford and a Fellow of Pembroke College, and Mary Garrison, Lecturer in History at the Centre for Medieval Studies at the University of York. Mary Garrison, we've called him Alcuin of York. We'll come to Alcuin soon, but what was distinctive about York as a place of learning? So York was the most remarkable centre of learning in the second two quarters of the 8th century. Most remarkable in what? In England or everywhere? um, In in Western Latin Christendom, really. So a teacher named Elbert had made it his mission to collect books and new subjects of study from across the continent, using his own private fortune to amass a remarkable library. And Elbert saw wisdom as part of human godlikeness. He even dedicated a church to wisdom, which Alcune and his fellow student built. And then most significant of all, The curriculum at York included not just the seven liberal arts, which were not taught everywhere by any means, but also history and natural history. Elbert was really a scientist. And because York was a cathedral, not a monastery, like Bede's foundations, students could come, even from abroad, from Ireland and Friesland, and then depart again with their learning. The fact that a cathedral school could attract students from everywhere meant that it had a larger catchment area for bright pupils. The curriculum was exceptionally wide. Can you be more specific about it? The seven liberal arts are are often thought to be the basis of medieval education, grammar, rhetoric and logic, and arithmetic, geometry, astronomy and music. But in reality, learning in the Latin West, apart from Northumbria, had contracted to the narrow range of studies you needed to save your soul. So... Reading and writing, learning enough grammar to understand the Bible correctly, learning enough astronomy to calculate the date of Easter. So what stands out at York is a program of learning that went far beyond what you needed to save your soul. And then Albert added a great deal to that. He was he was really a na- na- natural historian, yeah. and he had his, his studies on plants and on animals and, and so on. That's right. So Albert had a remarkable view that the the sort of rationality of the universe had been implanted in it by God and that the human ability to understand it was also implanted by God. So he said humans were not the inventors of the liberal arts. They discovered them in things. And he believed that reason was a wondrous and beautiful thing. And he taught, um, Alcune wrote, he expounded the five zones of heaven, the seven planets, the regular motions of the stars, their rising and setting, the movements of the air, the tremors of earth and sea, the natures of men and livestock, of birds and wild beasts, and the diverse forms and shapes of numbers. 
Did his pupils read classical literature as well as uh, uh, church yeah. literature? So at the School of York they did, and this is one of the remarkable features. Who would they read? So they read um, an epitome of Roman history. They read Pliny's Natural History, probably the only place at the time where that was being studied. Alcuin would bring Seneca's Natural Questions and Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy to the continent. Um, so a range of works that you didn't need to know to save your soul, but that sort of allowed people to, to penetrate the idea that the universe and nature were orderly and comprehensible. So we're talking about the great Albert, a great teacher who became Archbishop of York and Alcuin, his favourite and favourite and most splendid pupil. What was the purpose of learning? You mentioned it, God, to make because of what was called God-likeness. Yeah. The more you knew, the more you were like God. Yeah, so Alcuin, in sort of jesting remarks, Alcuin would sometimes make make jokes on someone's name, likening the letters to their numbers and arithmetical jokes, and then this all seems very sort of trivial. And then he would say, by using your intellect to solve this puzzle, um, you are sort of touching on the divine reason, the logos. And so there was a sense that learning for delight was part of human part of human godlikeness. The human intellect was something sacred. And York seems to be the first place in the Western patristic times that developed a kind of wisdom theology. Thank you very much. Joanna Story, Joe, we, we've skipped over his early biographies, Alcuin. What do we know about that? Well, we know that he was born in Northumbria round about the year 740. We don't have a specific uh, birth date for him. So he's the generation after Bede. Bede died in 735. So the Venerable Bede, the great scholar of Northumbria. History of English-speaking peoples and 30 other books. Exactly. Um, He died in 804 in Francia. So he died when he was in his 60s. So he lived to be a a good, good age for the 8th century. He was born in Northumbria to a family of moderate, uh, lower social, lower noble rank, something of that order, that held land in to the east of York, probably in the area of uh, Holderness. Um, and he came into the Archbishop's uh, community as a boy, and as Mary's already said, um, very quickly became central to uh, the, and very close to the Archbishop Aylbert initially. Um, he was clearly uh, somebody who responded quickly and well to learning and became very uh, central to the Aylbert's uh, school uh, in York. Um, he travelled with Aylbert to the continent, we know that at least once probably in his 20s, um, under Elbert's successor, um, he took over the running of the, the school and, as Mary said, he became a very important um, uh, teacher there, attracting students from not only uh, Northumbria but from abroad as well. Do we know what made him distinctively good? Uh, his York years are uh, harder to uh, pin down because almost, as we'll hear, almost all of the evidence for Alcuin's life comes from his his period of um, the period of his life that he spent in in Francia with with Charlemagne um, but he's clearly a an excellent both an excellent teacher and communicator as well um, and he uh, is somebody who's used by the archbishops not only in his capacity as an educator but on diplomatic missions so uh, under um, he is in eight 
780 he sent to Rome. Um, he's already been to the continent at least once. He's met the elite of the Carolingian court and, uh, and been to monasteries collecting books with Elbert. But in 780 he's sent to Rome to collect the pallium, which is a, a kind of the badge of office uh, for the new archbishop. And it's on his way back uh, from Rome that he meets Charlemagne, who is travelling south. Uh, to Rome and he meets him at Palma and there's this uh, important meeting and this important moment where Charlemagne asks him if he would uh, join him and other scholars at the Carolingian court. Now what did Charlemagne see in him and what sort of appointment did he give him and Alcuin was very well established in York, doing very well and if you can put it that way, well you can't put it that way doing very well indeed. Um, So why would he go with Charlemagne? What was Charlemagne offering him? Well, Charlemagne was gathering the brightest and the best from across the known world. Bright and the best scholars uh, from across the known world um, uh, at his court. Um, And he was drawing on uh, English scholarship as well. And so Alcuin clearly had this reputation as somebody who was uh, amongst the most learned people uh, around at the time, and Charlemagne wanted him close to him. So Charlemagne would know of his reputation. Yeah, and he had already met Charlemagne uh, once before. He had he had come to the continent uh, with Albert collecting books. So he's he's. Uh, he's invited to join Charlemagne's court in 780-781. It's often been thought that he went pretty... He went back to York to deliver the pallium and then returned to Francia straight away. But we're pretty sure now that he is not in um, Francia until after 786. Um, so there's a, a period of a few more years spent in York before he returns to uh, to Francia. Um, he's then in Francia for a period, of a few years, from 786 to about 790. In 790, we can take him, we can place him back in Northumbria. He returns to Northumbria. Um, the next time we can uh, pinpoint his movements, he is back in Francia in 793 he's certainly in Francia after news of the Viking raid on Lindisfarne this important monastic site in Northumbria comes through in 793 um, So can I just yeah? move on for a second to, well, to Andy and the orchard how did this, this relationship between Alcuin and King Charles as he then was before he became the great or Charlemagne, how did it develop and was there a stage at which uh, Alcuin became the preeminent scholar as Mary has said in, in her notes, at the, he, in that circle. He certainly was the preeminent scholar. Um, I think there's, there's several phases in terms of the development of Charlemagne's school. So um, he breaks out of Francia, um, conquers the Lombards. So the first stage is Italian scholars uh, that he brings in first before Alcuin comes along. Alcuin, at this point, was the teacher in the school at York, as I like to think of it, honing his educational skills, using very distinctly Anglo-Saxon techniques uh, of learning from a vernacular perspective, uh, moving them into the Latin. And so when... What were those distinctive Anglo-Saxon techniques? Comedy. (laughs) He was very big on things like riddles, um, jokes... um, Puns, some puns we would think to be, you know, terrible. Um, mathematical Most, puzzles, puns are. <laughs> well, yes, uh, and and so, but they stick in the mind of students. Yeah. And so he had at least fourteen years as a as a teacher before Charlemagne made him the offer. He comes to join a court that uh, you have Paul the Deacon, who's a Lombard, who's a historian, who's a little bit dry but quite interesting. Peter of Pisa, who I always think is a bit of the sa- the sad one among the three, who's a grammarian. He's teaching Charlemagne Latin and very dull stuff. And then Alcuin, who has lots of, as it were, classroom experience, comes in and starts bringing in some new techniques and livens things up no end. What was it about King Charles that wanted him to do this? 
I, he he was collecting uh, he was collecting the best and the brightest from all over the place, and Why? so he immediately he had an idea. I think again that that um, he's called David is one of his nicknames, and the idea of King David. So you're a warrior on the one hand, and he was very much a warrior, but also David as a as the composer of the Psalms. Um, in the next generation, Angelbert, uh, who's, a, who's a Frank, who's one of Alquin's students. I mean, Alquin had so many students that they all did something. But, he, I mean, he composes an absolutely terrible line of, of poetry when he, you know, he talks about uh, David. David loves poets. David Amat Varte is Vartores Gloria David. David is the glory of poets and thereby incidentally screws up the genitive plural of the word for a poet, which another poet then makes fun of. It was It was very much like a sort of college atmosphere where you have these leading academics and they're all vying for Charlemagne's attention and making fun of each other. I still like to pinpoint we've got this great warrior mm. with enormous uh, power mm. in, in, his, in, in, in armies and conquering stuff yeah. and that. Why did he want also to kickstart what became an enormous and profound important renaissance for the whole of Western Christendom and Western civilization? Why, is there a reason? There, there are two possible, at least two possible reasons. But one of them is this notion that uh, to be a, to be a true uh, hero, as it were, comes out of the classical tradition, comes out of Virgil. That it's not just it's about sapientia et fortitudo. It's about wisdom and might. So if you think about somebody like. Um, Achilles. Achilles is just a fighting machine. Uh, the Virgilian hero has a bit of nous about them. And we're moving exactly into the period where you get this third angle of thought and word and deed. And to be a complete person, particularly to be a complete warrior, you have to be able to not just do things, not just say things, but also to be able to think things. And he's honing uh, these skills. And so a lot of the learning for learning's sake... Um, which is sort of the hallmark of what Alquin is, is, is doing. They don't have very obvious practical values, but they're, they're like, ex- it's like a modern day humanities degree. Um, and Charlemagne seems to enjoy and has a particular closeness for Alquin. This, Alquin's biographer says that Alquin was via undecunque doctissimus, the most learned of men, and that he was the one person who could criticise or suggest things to Charlemagne without Charlemagne getting upset. When did Charlemagne learn to read and write? Not till quite late in his life and he was never particularly good at it and we have his, his handwriting is execrable I think that's fair <laughs> to say uh, and we, we, we're told that his Latin was okay and but he could understand Greek but he didn't like to speak it which always makes me a bit suspicious when you hear that. Well there's a story that Einhard tells isn't that's there it. where Charlemagne is sitting up in bed with his tablets trying to form the letters and never quite manages to do it and in frustration sort of hurls yeah. them across the room. The, the tablet story may be part of royal humility because mm. just as today a grand personage will not write their own letters even though they can do it on the word Mm. processor. When Alcuin arrived at the court of King Charles, what what markedly new that he brought to this assembly of scholars? So, um, I think there are two ways to see the major innovation. One is in terms of the content of learning and one is in terms of the sociability of the court. In terms of the content... Alcuin did two things that to us seem to be at odds. He helped Charlemagne write official decrees, such as the Admonitio Generalis, which included provisions saying that people should write correctly, punctuate their texts, not do silly japes when they were copying things. And this was a way to inform the most basic scriptural literacy that you needed to save your soul. But then, in the private seminar at court, Alcuin introduced this ideal of learning for its own sake 
and he brought the love poetry of Tibullus and the consolation of philosophy. He introduced Latin translations of Aristotle's works on logic, um, a whole range of works that hadn't been studied for centuries. And he had a sort of collaborative dialogical approach. So we can find two Carolingian poets writing a beast fable or a small group of Alcuin and his student in Theodolf experimenting with acrostic poetry. And this sort of spirit of dialogue that knowledge was an exchange and a discussion is evident in the teaching texts. Alcuin wrote a work on rhetoric, the first work since classical antiquity that presented rhetoric in a dialogue form, and then lower-level question-and-answer texts about grammar. And he also included the women of the court in this intellectual life. Charlemagne famously wouldn't allow his daughters to marry, and Alcuin engaged them in correspondence, and they wrote to him with questions. Alcuin alone gave the daughters nicknames. Alcuin alone wrote a letter to the queen. So Alcuin had this unique human familiarity and charm, and then his ability to marshal these new subjects um, meant that the Italians were soon redundant and went back home, while Charlemagne studied astronomy and rhetoric and dialectic with Alcuin. So essentially, you could say he moved the level of studies from, from primary education to secondary education, and he made learning attractive and captivating. Can you take that up, uh, Joe, and develop? What he, he, we've talked; it's been mentioned the effect on people and what what it affected them to do. Um, I think it's important to take one step back a little right. with this because uh, Mary mentioned this document, the Admonitio Generalis, which was this uh, important uh, framing of what Charlemagne was attempting to achieve uh, in. Uh, the late 780s. And one of the things within that is that he says that he wants there to be schools established throughout Francia. Um, and so this idea of education at the court is then also translated beyond that to uh, the kingdom more generally. And he's expecting uh, boys, noble boys, or bright boys, wherever they might be, to attend uh, schools which were to be located in cathedrals, just like the one that had been at York, uh, other cathedrals around the country, and in monasteries as well. So the emphasis on education in, under Charlemagne is... Uh, across the country, it's not just at the court itself. Although the court is uh, central, is the century petal force within that. What's also crucial here, um, and it hasn't been picked up so far, is that we've been talking about learning for its own sake. Um, but at this time, people believe that for a kingdom to function, they need men who can fight, men who can pray, and men who can work, work in the fields. Um, and so for a kingdom to be successful, it needs uh, people who can pray and people who can communicate with God accurately. And there's a concern generally about the declining standards of Latin. And so as part of this Carolingian renaissance, this renovatio of learning that's happening, is this renewed emphasis on accurate Latin and correct communication in order that the kingdom as a whole can pray successfully to God and God will stay on the side of the Franks in battle. Did Alcuin take his great library of York, did he take that across? Uh, no, not entirely, but we um, know that he is sending back to York for books. We know that books are being sent uh, to uh, the continent as well. Um, so 
There are times when he is frustrated by the fact that he hasn't got uh, um, books that he knows are in York, and so he writes back and, and asks for them to be to be sent across. It's very important, Andy, isn't it, to get books out of England at that time. We talked about the Vikings coming in and Lindisfarne and, and, and wrecking books and tearing the bits because well, they just want the jewels on them and they're going to come back again and again. So we have these destructive forces going on. They kept going on and there's no reason why people shouldn't think at the time they're going to keep going on. Absolutely. So and where I, I, does, where does yeah. what Alcuin's doing fit into that? that it uh, fits in very nicely, but it's part of a wider programme. So there is a tradition before Alcuin of um, Anglo-Saxons going abroad to convert the Germans who they, they saw as their Germani and taking books from England over there. Um, and then the Vikings, you know, shy, sensitive antique dealers, sadly misunderstood, but they weren't big on books, let's be fair. Mm. What they were interested in, as you say, was, was the coverings of the books and, and, and the way that... Uh, and, and the stuff, the loot. So that what we have in the much later centuries after Alcuin is books then being brought back from the continent that had been, as it were, saved from the Viking incursions. And then after after King Alfred, effectively, uh, these same books are coming back. The library at York, we know in a great deal of detail because Alcuin tells us in his longest poem, 1685-line poem, he gives you a library catalogue in the, towards the end of the poem, and it's a mark of how much he respected his teacher, Albert, that um, famously, uh, the Roman occupation of York is covered in 19 lines. Albert's death is 34 lines. He loved his teacher, and part of the reason, I think, for him going is Charlemagne becomes the father figure that Albert was uh, and replaces him uh, in, in that sense. And in this, we find Mary talked about some of the classical texts, but he's saying, we read Lucan, we read Statius, we read Virgil. He quotes bits of Ovid. This is extraordinary in a Christian context where these are pagan poets. You're not supposed to elevate these guys necessarily. Um, and love poetry, pagan love poetry. And you mentioned earlier that he's very fond of riddles, and, if, uh, and he, you, you put some in your in your notes. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's got uh, the, the the riddle technique is one that is it's very Anglo-Saxon. Uh, we have about seven hundred riddles in the Anglo-Saxon tradition, and it goes back to somebody who wasn't an Anglo-Saxon, but a guy called Symphosius, who was used as a teaching text. And Symphosius is like Plato's symposium; it means drinking party animal, and it's like you know, I was at a drinking party and I had to recite some poems, and here they are, and here's some riddles. And they were used by um, a, a predecessor of Bede, a man called Aldhelm, used them in Anglo-Saxon England. And so you would ask people to solve these riddles. For example, what is this creature that uh, when you take away the head, it's taller? And the answer is a pillow. This has no practical value unless you're an insomniac, I suppose. But it's a way of, can you think outside the box? Can you think outside the ideas? And the boat going across the river and backwards. Well, that, that, these are mathematical puzzles that mm. he does, where he, 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 he it seems to be the first person to have the, you know, the idea of, um, there, are th- there are three guys, and they've each got three sisters. And they've each got them, a sister. They've each got a sister, sorry. Three guys, three sisters, and um, they don't basically trust the blokes to be with their sister. They've got to get across a river. The boat only takes two people. How many trips? And the answer... Alcuin says the answer is 11. A modern mathematician would tell you the answer is actually 9. But what's interesting is that Alcuin is doing this before algebra, before the before number 0, and doing it in with Roman numerals. So that, you know, he has another one. There are seven carpenters. They make seven wheels. How many carts can they make? And so we think of it 7 times 7, 
four wheels that'll be okay 49 so that'll be 12 carts and one left over but if you think of it in alquin terms it's vii times vii and and so on it's much more complicated and you have to think outside the box mary um you want to come in and then i want to ask you about the many of his letters that remain according number 270 remain and what did they reveal of him yeah so I think I'll connect those two things. Um, for the books to be able to bear fruit, they needed teachers who could expound them in an unbroken chain of a teacher teaching a student who carried that knowledge on. And so the fatal interruption caused by the Viking invasions didn't just result in the almost complete wipeout of Northumbrian culture to the point that the only early Northumbrian books still in existence in Northumbria are less than half a dozen in Durham, but it also fatally interrupted the ch- that chain of teaching from teacher to student, student to teacher, and so on. And it's on the continent that we see the first unbroken chains of, of discipleship. Even Bede wasn't able to pass his knowledge on for one generation. I'll move on to the letters now. So the letters are one of the most extraordinary documents because they let us see a man of colossal influence in learning observing a world of headlong change, chronicling it to the point where there are events and persons who would be unknown without his letters. But they also show Alcuin being changed himself by those things he observed. So we can get to know his inner life, his experiences of grief and friendship, his longing for Northumbria. We can also see that Alcuin was the gentleman with the horse who could tell you how to behave when you visited Charlemagne and even lend you a saddle in his own horse. He was the correspondent of gangsters' malls and kings who murdered other kings in Northumbria. He wrote extraordinarily frequently to collectivities, writing to all the men of Kent or all the men of Northumbria. This shows a remarkable sense of authority. Just as he was the only person who could contradict Charlemagne, he wrote letters of admonition to many people. And the letters are almost a historical event in their own right because they're the first letters that were collected and multiplied because people wanted to read them since antiquity. Alcuin didn't imagine a posterity for his letters. As with his poems, he never put them together and gave them a preface and divided them into books. But contemporaries wanted the letters and made collections in his lifetime. There are over 50 manuscripts of the letters um, very many from the ninth and 10th century with anywhere from two to 90 letters. Joe, John's story. Um, he wrote to women as well as men, as has been mentioned. What's significant about that? There are not so many letters surviving from uh, the Middle Ages uh, to to women. Uh, Alcuin's letters to, to, to women are um, incredibly interesting because he writes frequently and regularly to um, the women of the Carolingian court, so the Frankish women, uh, so Charlemagne's women. He also writes to the women in the Mercian court and also to Northumbria as well. And he clearly understands that he knows these people, he knows them personally, he's met them, but he understands that if he wants to be able to influence the men at the court, talking to the women is going to is, is one way of doing that. That was a technique that the Celtic monks used from the beginning, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, Getting absolutely. Getting the king through the queen. Well, it's a, it's a technique that people still use nowadays, isn't it? Um, Would you believe it? Yeah. Okay, so... Um, he, he writes to he, he writes to the women. He knows them personally. He uh, communicates with them about scholarly matters, but also about personal things as well. They're exchanging gifts. Um, these are these are real relationships. Um, and uh, 
what I think is 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 very important from this is that these are uh, these are women who uh, they sort of flesh out the the politics of the court in a way that we wouldn't otherwise have it. One of the key things about Alcuin's letter collection is that they um, cluster in date uh, into basically the seven nineties. He died in eight oh four, and there are. Two hundred eighty, three hundred odd letters that we can attribute to Alcuin, um, and collectively these make the seven nineties an incredibly well documented, one of the, the best documented decades of the of the post Roman centuries. Um, and it's because we have Alcuin's repeated correspondence with people. We don't have their replies coming back, but we can infer what he's uh, what the correspondence is about. Um, and so the women of the of the the Frankish court, the Mercian court. And in the Northumbrian court are regular correspondents of Alcuin. They were his pupils often, but it's through them that he's able to uh, get messages through to, to the men of the, of, who are ruling these kingdoms. And these are people like Offer of Mercia. Um, so a man of who considered himself Charlemagne's equal um, and a man of very considerable uh, danger, really. Um, uh, as well as the the kings of his own uh, people in Northumbria, who developed a habit of killing each other, who were yeah, you know, homicidal maniacs at the at the time. That's so a kind way of putting that's it. That's a really. kind way of putting it. Yes, yeah. Andy Andy Orchard, <coughs> he wrote poems as well. This this amazing man, he, yeah. a public and private. Can you tell us a bit about the private poems? Well, he he churned it out. Is is is? Uh, I mean, well, from the, from the whole churning, isn't it? Well, crafted. Um, <laughs> if I quote some of it to you, you might think churning is, is exactly the right <laughs> well, word. Some churn, some crafted. Some were better than others. Um, he, I mean, the, the the in total, it's about six and a half thousand lines of poetry. That's a lot of poetry, from the whole of the Anglo-Saxon period. Anglo-Saxon poets in Latin and in Old English, we've got between fifty and sixty thousand lines. Alcuin is. More than 10%. He's two Beowulfs worth, if you want to think of it like that. And he writes very long poems. This, this York poem, he writes a poem on the, on the sack of Lindisfarne. He writes The Life of Willibrod. These are the very public ones. Uh, the private ones, I think, are much more interesting. And so in the official tally of the poetry, there's 124 poems. There's another 25 or so, which are only in the letters. So at the end of letters, when he writes to um, his students. And he gives students nicknames, so often bird nicknames. So he has a student called Cuckulus, the cuckoo, uh, who he says, you shouldn't be drinking so much, my lad. You were a much better poet when you didn't drink. And please don't do it. And two of his uh, deathless lines, which I couldn't possibly suggest that he turned out, but he says, Carmen acid coras cuculus, kitus echa venito, echa venito precor, cuculus, echa venito, which means, if you care about poetry, cuckoo, please come quickly. I'm telling you, please come quickly. God, it'd be nice if you came quickly. I mean, this is not um, T.S. Eliot. He's uh, more public poetry is is much more um carefully crafted with lots of allusions you know in the in the york poem when he's talking about the conversion of the pagans to uh, the pagan priest coivy he quotes virgil he quotes lucan he quotes ovid he can do it when he wants to but i think he also is uh, he's been called the poet laureate he did do poems to order right now you both want to get in so could you marry first yeah. so uh, and then i Joe. think his poems as well as his letters show that he knew how to write comilfo. No one had been capable of writing a hexameter at the papal court, nor at the Frankish court till Alcuin came. He made it cool to write coterie poetry and small, gracious poems to people. And then 
both his letters and his poems became models. And if, if we look at the circulation of his inscriptional verse, so a verse for for the kitchen or the bookshelf or the library or the scriptorium or even the latrine, those were copied. Everyone wanted that. So he, he set a new standard for a kind of gracious use of prestigious Latin. Was there any chance that he, want, that he would go back to Northumbria or Mercia or too much change? This is one of the most poignant, fascinating questions, and we can trace this in detail. He was pressured to return by the Archbishop of York, his former fellow student, in 795, and he kept on saying he couldn't come. Clearly, the Archbishop wanted to retire and pass on the seat before he died. And then... In 796, Alcuin called it the year of miseries and the death of kings. So King Ethelred was murdered. His successor stayed in place for less than a month before he was expelled. Alcuin then must have decided not to return, and he wrote a letter saying, I have just been given the monastery of Tours. And later on, he wrote to the community at York telling them he loved them, he hoped he might be buried with them. They must make an honest election if he couldn't get there in time. It looks as if Charlemagne gave him tours as a sort of compensation for his estates in England. And indeed, not long after that is when Alcuin finally arranged to export the library. So this 796 was a catastrophic year, and Alcuin adopted sort of the the expressions of an Old Testament prophet, and he said, Times of tribulation are everywhere. Loyalty is declining. The truth is silent. Malice is increasing. I was ready to return, but it seemed better to remain abroad, not knowing what I could accomplish among those among whom nothing is safe and no good counsel can prevail. Joanna Jo, um, when Charles became Emperor, Charles the Great, Charlemagne, uh, in 800, how reliant, where, where did Alcuin stand in, the, in his scheme of things then? Charlemagne famously was made Emperor in Rome on Christmas Day in the year 800. Alcuin, by that stage, as Mary has said, had become established at Tours in Western Francia, which was in many ways quite distant from Charlemagne's court, which by this stage was focused in Aachen predominantly. And we have to point out that for the first time, early on with Alcuin and and, and King Charles, then was there there wasn't a settled court. They toured together to them all around the place. Yeah, absolutely. So, sorry, um, uh, kingship in the early Middle Ages is essentially peripatetic. Uh, There is a very unusual aspect of Charlemagne's king kingship in that in round about 795 he begins to start investing heavily in a palace complex at Aachen and indeed his chapel it still survives and it's one of the sort of treasures of the um, of, of European heritage um, and so fr- from the sort of second half of the um, the 790s Charlemagne is increasingly centered around Aachen and it's at this point well 796 that Alcuin moves away from the court to Tours in western Francia near near Orléans. So when this crisis happens in Rome in 799 the pope is attacked he flees northwards to Charlemagne and uh, Charles agrees to have him escorted back into into Rome. This provides a political opening for what leads to the imperial coronation in 800. It's very, very significant that in early 800, um, after the Pope has returned to Rome with Charlemagne's uh, assistance, um, Charlemagne tours his kingdom and goes to see Alcuin and clearly spends quite a considerable period of time with Alcuin there. So although Alcuin has left the court, he's retired to Tours, at this 
pivotal moment in Charlemagne's uh, reign. He turns back to Alcuin to get his advice. And Alcuin decides not to go to Rome with Charles. Charles has decided he has to go to Rome to solve the Pope's problems and to try the people who had accused him. Alcuin decides not to travel on grounds of his health, but it's important that Charlemagne had been to see him to get his advice. Andy Orchard, um, Tour, there's, there's one, sort of a couple of views on it, that this was a great, hugely, hugely rich, enormously rich, and, and he, was, he, he was given other places of all other abbeys, so he was a very, very rich, and there he could do all sorts of things, bought his library there, and at the same time there's a feeling that he was disliked and he felt lonely, writes about, uh, uh, writes about he, he, when he was a boy, chased the deer, now he's an old man walking across a field with a stick and that sort of thing. What I would say is that, I mean, the, the, the lines of poetry that you were, just, you were just quoting are in fact possibly some of his best lines, right? So, you know, nil manitaito num nil immutabile veros. Nothing remains forever, nothing is truly immutable in the field where once people used to chase the deer as young boys, now an old man, Bacolo Senes, an old man just resting on his stick. And he says, and but this is this is very the important thing about Tour. Almost all of our information about Alcuin comes from that period, right? Seven nine six Tour. He dies in eight oh four. Two thirds of the letters that we have are from that that period. Most of the poetry that we have is from that period, and there is a sense of of of, of longing, of exile, of. Uh, he, he talks in, in, in this nos misery corte we poor wretches why do we love you world when you're running away from us you keep running away from us and yet we still love you and there, there's a sort of repetitious element so you know his favourite word is semper always, always, always in his poetry he uses the word always it's sad that I know this 273 times uh, in a comparative corpus uh, it's, it's very repetitious and it is um, sad and he writes the poems that he writes to his students he almost always ends them saying please send me a poem, please write to me and his students became incredibly uh, um, powerful and effective and you know his, his uh, the line I would think of for Alcuin sis mamma albini per tempora longa magistri remember Alcuin he was a teacher for a hell of a long time and he's the teacher is really his kind of that's his big legacy Mary um so he had, but he had plenty of resources at Tours yeah, to get on with, with, with his so central task that he set himself. Tours was vastly well resourced, and it gave Alcuin a scriptorium that ho- had already been disciplined in decades before, where he could have his letters multiplied for people who requested them. We don't actually have Turonian copies, but of course, Turonian copies were sent out. It gave him the chance to inaugurate the production of one-volume Pandects, and it also, Alkin was alluding to the students, when he was settled in tour, that's when scholars like Rabanus Maurus were sent to study with him, and Rabanus is sort of the second father of expansive, capacious learning in Europe, and whether he really felt exiled or whether he was just... He had malaria, he had mm. fevers, his eyesight was failing. He complained that Charlemagne kept writing to him and he said, your questions are like flies buzzing around the windows. At tour, he corresponded with Charlemagne about the retrograde motion of the planet Mars at greater length than any writer in the Latin West ever had done. And he was constantly fending off invitations to the court. So there's a poignance, but there's also a sense that this is the time of great intellectual fruition um, yeah, just uh, for what was he most valued, Alcuin? Was he widely valued in his time? 
Yes, and uh, for this uh, sort of energy that he puts into the Carolingian court and the renaissance of learning, um, he certainly valued it, it during his own day. And it's this, what Mary alluded to there, the editing of the Bible is something that he undertakes in tour at Charlemagne's specific request. When manuscripts are copied out, errors are introduced. Um, and there was this concern that the Bible text was becoming uh, less pure. And so Charlemagne asked him to revive, the, to, to edit the Bible, to make sure that it was the Old Testament and the New were, um, were, were accurate. And he begins this process, which whereby Tour starts to produce, uh, as Mary says, pandects, a bit um, complete copies of the Bible within one volume, uh, according to this, this newly revised text. Um, and there's a... There's a, a a connection there possibly with um, the uh, Bible manuscripts that were produced back in, in uh, Bede's library in Wearmouth and Jarrow and the great Codex Amiatinus that so many of us saw in, in, in London a year ago, um, where this tradition of uh, producing complete copies of the Bible was very, very unusual, but there was a distinct Northumbrian heritage to that uh, idea. Is it possible for the three of you briefly to say what you most value about his legacy? Starting with you, Andy. I actually, despite what you might think, I quite like his poetry in a funny way uh, because it's you get at the sense of the man. It's intensely personal. It's as if you can know somebody from that period. Um, contemporaries and near contemporaries, a, a much much better poet, Theodore of Orleans, makes fun of Alcuin in this sort of you know he calls him the porridge man. Um, so he's the pasty faced English guy. I, I assume he wore socks with his sandals, and then he says, "Make way, we need some spicy sausage." He's a he's a Spaniard, so he's he's saying now to the new man. But um, you can actually see him, his letters, his poems. It's very personal. Not the liturgy, not the Bible. It's him. Mary, I think because the word Renaissance has been so well domesticated in the English language, it's easy to think that every Renaissance was inevitable. But before Alcuin, classical learning was hanging by a thread. Alcuin, not the rediscovery of Lucretius in early modern times, is the true swerve in Western culture. Because if Alcuin hadn't rescued the harvest of Northumbrian learning from York, this capacious program of studies, and brought it to the continent and brought the books to the continent before the Viking devastation of the British Isles, I think the literary and cultural and intellectual history of the West would look completely different. And finally, Joe. To re reinforce that point, that Alcuin, almost more than anybody else, exemplifies the importance of Anglo-Saxon culture to the heritage of uh, Europe in centuries after Rome. Well, thank you all very much. Thanks, Mary Garrison, Joe Story, and Andy Orchard. Next week, it's George Sand, the woman who became the most popular French novelist in the 19th century, exploring how life might be improved for women and men. Thank you very much for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. Away you go. I'm going to sit back now. I've done my <laughs> can I say something about? Can I say something about Hadrian? Pope Please Hadrian. Yes. Oh, yeah. We talked a little bit about uh, Pope Leo, who is the uh, Pope who is um, uh, attacked in 799 and who Charlemagne uh, reinstates on on the throne uh, on the papal throne in in 800 and is so important in uh, Charlemagne's reputation. Um, but prior to Leo, there had been another Pope whose name was Hadrian, um, who. Uh, had been Pope for uh, 23, nearly 24 years, the longest-lived Pope until um, 
uh, the 18th century, in fact, and he had developed this very uh, robust friendship with and relationship with, with the Franks over the years. He died in 795, uh, and this uh, relationship this, this between Hadrian and Charlemagne uh, fractured because of his death. Um, Alcuin is the person who writes Hadrian's epitaph. We've talked about his, if you like, his frivolous poetry, but Hadrian's epitaph a 40-line verse, is uh, Alcuin's poetry at its epic best and at its most political. What is particularly interesting about Hadrian's epitaph is that it still survives today in its Carolingian form in the portico of St Peter's Basilica in Rome. So the next time you go into St Peter's Basilica through the main doors, look up on the left and you can see the epitaph that was written in Francia on Frankish stone by Alcuin, and it was a still comp- there. He, it was, he, won it, he won the competition basically. And so there, was, were, there was other it was people. Some were of there. the finest epigraphic letters. Um, yeah. Yeah. We haven't talked about Alcuin's interest in punctuation Absolutely. and spelling. spelling. Yeah. And these sound very pedantic, <laughs> but actually these are also of massive influence. Yeah. So yeah. what Alcuin did when he went to the continent would be much as if I went to the Netherlands as I did and told everyone that they should no longer say. Panakuka at the pancake stand, but Panenkuken, he insisted on a hypercorrect yeah. pronunciation of Latin, which was the way the English and the Irish scholars pronounced Latin. In doing that meant that classical Latin would become accessible again because people would have to pull up their socks and learn the grammar and not skate by on the similarity between a spoken vernacular that was no longer um, classically correct and, and words that they recognized. So Alcuin in, in a way, he turned the clock back on Latin. But it, it, in, it, he also turned the clock forward in the sense of he he uh, he makes some quite bad errors in his Latin poetry. But then the mistaken form that he popularizes is then the one that yeah. his students then use. So it's as if forget yeah. Virgil, forget Ovid, mm-hmm. but Alcuin is you know I, I can tell you how to scan start him incorrectly I, by the way. But they, can, can I go back to some of the paradoxes of yeah. this remarkable phenomenon of the knowable human being, not just someone who influences history, but but who is influenced mm. by it? And I like to say that our knowledge of him is a portrait in chiaroscuro because there are areas that are well lit where we know a lot and they're complete darkness. Um, darkness. Yeah. And so one of the questions is when he went to the continent and most recently there's been an argument that he knew Charlemagne very well, much earlier in, in an attempt to redate his teaching text then. And mm. as far as I can see, the question of whether he first came to the continent in 781, in 786, or even had had some extended sojourns in the 770s can't be resolved right now and so we have this remarkable phenomenon of a person of influence across the centuries and incredible connectivity and charisma in his own time and authority massive authority um and yet there there are whole areas of of his life that can't be reconstructed according to sort of modern biographical standards. It's, it's the Anglo-Saxon aspects that I think mm. are, are particularly interesting because if you if you take Alcuin's uh, riddle, the, his use of riddle techniques, he uses the same riddle techniques that we only find in vernacular Old English riddles. Tell me the answer, free, say what I am called, tell me the answer, and he puts that into Latin and he uses it. That, that's, that's interesting. He writes Latin poetry using alliterative techniques that are found in Old English but are not found in, in Latin. So he carries his Englishness very much with him, even down to the repetitious formulaic aspects of the poetry and to some extent the, the, the letters that he writes. 
completely normal in Old English poetry, completely foreign to Latin, and he somehow blends the two of them together. And, and then they became the language comilfo that everyone yeah. wanted to imitate. So he, in Malcolm Gladwell's terms, he was a maven, a connector, and a persuader. He had this massive knowledge New that Edwin. he was able to make attractive and spread to people. And if you make a sort of genealogy of his students and their students, it's like a sun shining yeah. across Europe. And what one of Charlemagne's biographers said... There was not a single great abbot or bishop of the following generation who was not taught by Alcuin. So this is this is getting back to the idea that one person made an astonishing difference at a crucial moment in history, and things would look very different if he hadn't been there. Can we talk? Can you tell us something about the Carolingian minuscule? Hmm. Yes. Um, in the mid-8th century, it was the forms of writing across Francia were essentially different in each monastery. Uh, one of the things that happens uh, under Charlemagne with this process of correctio and attempting to uh, spread correct Latin learning is also a, a um, reform of script so that people are using a script that is mutually legible across his kingdom um, and they come up with a, a minuscule script that evolves from a from an earlier Roman script um, it's uh, called Caroline minuscule um, and it essentially is the basis of the script that we use today so when you go to school you are taught to write what is basically Caroline minuscule so we used and to call it copperplate yeah, yeah kind of it's the kind of um, yeah it's and it's Mine is kind of copperplate. Kind, of, yeah, <laughs> without the without the linking bits together. Not um, the but the um, the the reason for this is is a is a important historical one. Mary and Andy have both talked about how the Carolingian Renaissance is the sort of stepping stone for so much classical literature. So in um, the uh, 15th century, 14th, 15th century, when humanist scholars were beginning to to the invention of printing comes in, um, they are interested in classical texts. The manuscripts they find of uh, Lucian or Cicero or whatever are in fact Carolingian copies. And so as they're looking at these manuscripts, they think they're looking at the earliest copies of the classics. Um, and so they use the script that is the Caroline minuscule for their early movable type. And that's because each letter is distinctly formed and separate one from another. So it's very easy to translate into print. And so this is why those, it, it essentially ends up as our Times New Roman, our Roman script is uh, essentially Caroline minuscule. And so that is why the script that we all learn to read and write is Caroline minuscule. When I'm teaching paleography to my students, I start them with Caroline minuscule because they can read it straight off gets harder before and after that. It's, I mean, what's very interesting about it is because it's so regular, because it's so neat, because the letters are separated, mm -hmm. um, I, a guy working for me at the moment, um, you, you can train a computer, like mm -hmm. you can train a computer to scan and read type. You can train a computer to read Caroline minuscule manuscripts very yeah. easily. And, you know, we have about six, 7,000 of them left. 7,500 seven 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 okay. uh, manuscripts were uh, surviving from Francia that were written in Francia yeah. in the ninth century in comparison to about 25 mm. or 30 from yeah. Anglo-Saxon England at same the same period. time. It's a massive 
difference, and that is, um, you know, Charlemagne's emphasis on education, education, education. The the schools across the uh, across the kingdom, um, and you can see that in the um, the survival, the simple survival rate of manuscripts uh, mm. from Francia in the ninth century. We, we haven't talked about whether we have any of writing in Alcuin's own uh-huh. hand, uh-huh. and it turns out that there are two letters written in the margin of a manuscript mm-hmm. that Alcune was instructing an assistant to excerpt for him, which are written in the contemporary Anglo-Saxon handwriting. Mm-hmm. We assume that they're Alcune's, not an amanuensis, the letters D and S for, for to start writing and to leave off writing. Um, so Alcune was promoting the standard of correctness and clarity and punctuation in an orderly page. Um, he he mentions that in several letters and it became it became as as imitation of his letters became standard it became the way to do things even though he was writing yeah, he, in a script that was Anglo-Saxon yeah. so in the answer, yeah. in the in the insular style but he was by the end of his life probably most of his writing was done by people who took dictation and he yeah. wouldn't have yeah. been wielding his hands, the yeah. pen wielding himself, himself. himself. yeah, yeah. yeah. Any other startling, outstanding factor? I, l- I love that anecdote about um, that's told about him in the Vita of him about the um, people in in tour who are complaining about all of the yeah. English students who are who are buzzing like bees around the honeypot at tour. Um, there's this irritation of all of these English yeah. people who are studying Erasmus like yeah. in in tour. Oh. Then Alcune ordered them all to to have a drink and make it up. But we also, we haven't talked so much about York as a city. And Alcune's poem about York describes all the chief features that you can still see today. He describes the walls and the towers and the riverbanks. And York then, of course, was a port. It no longer is as a, a magnet for people to come to. And it was also, I think, York as the seat of the archbishopric then enabled Alcuin to develop his incredible social agility and connections. Mm-hmm. He wasn't travelling to visit people. They would come to York and he would meet them there. So although archaeologists still haven't found as much from, from Anglian York as we want, in a way Alcuin's connections and network and competence show that being at York was like being a spider at the centre of a web where people came through and traders came. Mm-hmm. I think it's also uh, very interesting and important to think about the difference between somebody like Alcuin and somebody like Bede. Mm. Yeah. Because Bede was a, a monk who lived a little further north than, um, than, than York. He lived in Wearmouth and Jarrow all his life. He may have travelled a little, but not so much. And he, he, his whole life was centred on uh, the banks of the Tyne, the banks of the Weir. Um, Alcuin's world was very different to that. Alcuin's world attached to a cathedral Mm. is outward looking. Um, The world comes to Alcuin, Alcuin goes to the world. There is much more mobility and connectivity around a cathedral than there is around a monastery. Bede Bede had visited nearby York. And Bede also, Bede Bede refused to call the liberal arts by their names. He was vastly learned, but it was as if he saw learning as so closely... Um, embedded in the monastic life that he wasn't trying to mm-hmm. expound the disciplines and perhaps I think of him as a, a sort of professor at an institute for advanced studies who who exerts a chilling effect on his yeah. colleagues and students by his brilliance so Alcuin had this remarkable warmth 
While he was first at court, he got all the commissions to write things. It was only after he withdrew to tour that other people were invited to write. I think well, the final word from Andy, the producer is, is chumping at the bit. <laughs> Just as an example of that, the very, the very first one of his mathematical puzzles, he talks about a snail who's been invited to dinner by a swallow. The swallow lives a league away, and he says a league is 15,000 paces, a pace is five feet. There are 12 inches in a foot. The snail can travel one inch a day. How long will it take him to get to dinner? And the answer, I'm not making this up, is 246 years and 210 days. We presume that dinner was cold. That's that's comedy, but that's also... I mean, that's such a teaching moment, isn't it? Uh, and that, that's should have, that should have been a, a, a puzzle for... Uh, the Today programme, don't you think? In ten York, to seven, we've um, had pubs in the puzzle every year in the Festival of Ideas, and we've pubs had one of those puzzle, pubs yeah. on the radio. Puzzles in the pub. Yeah. Here's um, a producer, Simon Tillerson, with an offer. Right, got to stop now. Your coffee. Anyone like to your coffee? Yes, please. Tea. 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 Yes. Forties. Thank you very much. In our time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillerson. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Anna Delvey was due to inherit $67 million. I'm so excited about what the future holds. She secured huge investments for a project in New York. She was very confident in her words. And yet, it was all a lie. She's a con artist. Join journalist Vicky Baker as she delves into a real-life scandal. We'll mix drama with documentary to tell the story of Anna Delvey's rise and fall. Fake Heiress, a new six-part podcast on BBC Sounds. I was watching this whole thing happen thinking it can't be true. Download the free app to listen.